God inhabits the praises of his people, and so he delights when we focus on him and acknowledge with truth. He calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And uh, the words we've sung this morning are just dripping with truth, and so God delights in that. Was that the same on that first uh, Palm Sunday, on that first triumphal entry into Jerusalem? A lot of shouting, a lot of praising, but was it grounded in truth? This morning, I, I want to start with uh, a section in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry of Christ. So turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We'll start with verse 37. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. And Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you would direct us and, and um, challenge our hearts, our minds, our thinking, Father, and may we understand a little bit more about you. So speak to us, Father. Um, we present ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So verse 37 says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And they were shouting, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, for shalom, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Verse 45, Jesus then entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. And he was saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer from the book of Isaiah, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word that he said. It's a story of contrast, isn't it? The people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, cheering, and then Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. The people so close to Jesus, they'd seen his miracles, it says. They'd heard his teaching, and yet they did not recognize his true identity. If you only knew what makes for peace, but you did not recognize and the consequences for not accepting the truth were unimaginably horrible. Not one stone would be left upon another. Notice also the contrast between 
these excited cheers of the people wanting to elevate Jesus as king and then the religious leaders of the day in their hatred wanting to kill him. Five days later, the religious leaders got their desire. And Jesus is on the cross. And he dies that excruciating death as a common criminal. And five days later also, the people's cheers of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord are now turned to crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so Israel's sin has come full-blown. They crucify the servant of the Lord. And judgment was coming. Not one stone would be left upon another. Why? Because they did not recognize the time of visitation. May I suggest that what Jesus was saying is, you did not read Isaiah properly. And you did not recognize correctly the time. There's no better chapter in the Bible, I think, that describes the sin of Israel, the rejection and the rebellion that we see in that last week of Christ's life than Isaiah 59. And so take your Bibles with me now to Isaiah 59 as we continue the study of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59. It's a a chapter that begins with a word of rebuke. In verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And this picks up with this thought from Last week, if you happen to be with us, in chapter 58, uh, verse 3, when the people in their religiosity, in their outward formalism of, of worship said, why have we fasted and you don't see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Is your hand too short, God, that it doesn't save? Where are you? Is your ear too dull? Don't you hear? And of course, God's answer is, absolutely not. The problem is not with me, says God. The problem is with you. And notice he's not addressing the pagan Amorite or the pagan Hittite, the pagan Assyrian, the pagan Babylonian. This is my people. He is, a separation, verse 2, has been made between you and your God. And then he, he addresses the sin of the people. He, starting in verse 3, he kind of unpacks uh, uh, the, the characteristics. He, he lays it right out. This is your sin. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. And he points out these, these um, aspects of a, of a body. Your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue, everything about you is defiling. Verse 4, no one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion. 
and they speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Verse 5, they hatch adders' eggs, serpents' eggs, and weave the, the spider's web, and he who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth, and their webs will not become clothing, nor whether will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Verse 7 says, their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways, and they do not know peace. And there is no justice in their tracks, and they've made their paths crooked, and whoever treads on them does not know peace. These are the characteristics of the people. Swift to shed innocent blood. They're murderers filled with lies and deceptions. They're legal perversions, verse 4. They're manipulating the legal system to their own unjust gains. There's confusion, or some of our translations say empty words, arguments, there's lies, there's, there's mischief, there's iniquity. And then that an analogy with the, with the animals, the poisonous snake, and you, you eat the eggs, but it's, it's poison and you die. It's like you hold the the egg in your hand, and then it's, it, it's crushed, and a, little, a little, little snake, a baby snake comes out with all the venom, venom of an adult, and it bites you. Oh, it's so deceptive. It's just an egg, but you eat it and you die. It's crushed in your hands, you die. And the spider who spins his web of deception to entrap, he doesn't spin it to clothe himself. It's not for his covering. It's not for his clothing. It's deception. It's to catch its prey. It's to do violence, to harm. And verse 7, they don't do right. They run to do evil. They have an insatiable appetite for evil, to do harm, to bring destruction. And they live lives, verse 8, where there is no shalom, no peace, no justice, twisted lives following, he says in verse 8, this crooked pathway. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry, so-called, he was riding into the, into the hatred, into the, the clutches of the poisonous snakes, of the spiders spinning their webs of deceit to entrap him. And for five days following that Sunday's entrance, the religious leaders of the day, they quiz him, they question him. They're bent on trapping him because they said, we must destroy him. Isaiah 59, I think, is an incredible description of the days that Jesus Christ was living in. The religious leaders who were using the legal system and false testimonies to manipulate things, to condemn an innocent man, to shed the blood of the innocent. 
Like poisonous snakes, deceptive spiders, they spread their, their venom, their lies, and they hastened to do evil. They acted unjustly. They knew no peace. The consequences of the sin, starting in verse 9, notice that the, the pronoun is now changed to a first-person plural pronoun, as if Isaiah now inserts himself as is confessing the sins and acknowledging the consequences of his people's sin. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men, and we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears, verse 11, and we moan sadly like doves. And we hope for justice, but there is none. And for salvation, but it is far from us. The consequences of sin. Justice and righteousness are non-existent. Spiritual, moral, societal perversity. Ignorance and confusion abound. The people are miserably unhappy, but don't know it. They become like a, like a wounded, growling bear. They become like mournful doves living in an unjust world, no hope of relief, no hope of salvation. Isaiah says, we are a desperate, hopeless people. And then that honest confession begins in verse 12. Our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. This is Isaiah, this is the righteous man saying as he looks out over his people. Our transgressions are multiplied. Our sins testify against us. Verse 13, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. And, and truth has stumbled in the streets. can almost picture the Via Dolorosa as the way and the truth and the life. The only one, the only righteous and holy one, the one of truth stumbled in the streets. Isaiah says, we have done this. The uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, he says in the first part of verse 15, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. The sinful world had created a world of no justice, no righteousness, and no peace, no truth. A world where a righteous man, innocent, the truth, becomes prey. Last part of verse 15. 
He who turns aside from evil becomes their prey. And again, what we've just read doesn't only describe Isaiah's day or the day maybe as he's writing to exiles in Babylon 150 years from when he was writing. It doesn't only describe Jesus' day, the day that as he rode into Jerusalem to the hatred of the leaders. It describes our day as well. The problem of sin and its deadly consequences are universal, are universal. And we know that because the Apostle Paul teaches this in the book of Romans. He quotes from this very passage, Isaiah 59. In Romans chapter 3, he writes in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's, there's none who seeks for God. You gotta be kidding me, Paul. You really mean that? All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet, and here he quotes from Isaiah 59, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace, of shalom, they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by works of the law no flesh shall be justified in his sight. And all Paul is doing in this passage, as he quotes from other passages, but he pulls from Isaiah 59, this reality of the universality of the darkened heart. As he said earlier in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And so the Bible teaches that we are all born sinners. And there's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, he says, in reality, no one born in this world seeks after God. There's none who seek after God. All the world stands guilty. Every mouth must be stopped, verse 19. It's an indictment on all humanity, none righteous, no, not one. That's what Isaiah is writing about. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. There's a great chasm or a great wall that's built between us and a holy God. Is his arm so short that he cannot say? No. Is his ear too dull that he cannot hear? No. But he chooses not to because of sin. Sin is the problem. With all the, the consequences that follow it. And Isaiah pours out this confession. It's our transgressions. We have done this. We are born unrighteous. 
No one born in this world knows shalom and peace. It's not within the human heart to know it. We are in a desperately, sinfully, deadly situation. And so what's the solution? What's the answer to the universal problem of sin and separation from God? Well, the final paragraph of Isaiah 59 explains the only hope the world has. As he confirmed in the first part of verse 15, yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil even makes himself a prey. And then verse 15 goes on. Now the Lord saw. And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw, verse 16, that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. God saw two things. He saw the pervasiveness of evil. And as Isaiah would write, as he typically did in this very... Um, um, rich language. It was as if God saw, and I, I think the, the word literally means there was desolation in his soul. Some of our translations say he was appalled, astonished. There was, he was brokenhearted down to the depth of his soul. He saw the pervasive evil and he was crushed appalled. The second thing he saw, there was no solution. No man could solve the dilemma of the sinful human heart. The inability of man to do anything about it. And so, last part of verse 16, he took over. See that midway through verse 16? Then, then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put, him, put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself up with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands, that is, to the farthest reaches of the world, he will make recompense. And so they will, verse 19, so fear, they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun from the east. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Then the arm of the Lord, the arm, his own arm, will bring salvation. We've seen that phrase before in Isaiah. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53. And we've seen in our study of Isaiah that that is referring to a, a person. The arm of the Lord is the servant of the Lord, is this special one, this Messiah. This one that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw 
the Lord high and lifted up, the arm of the Lord in all his glory and all his power. The arm of the Lord. And God puts, he puts on salvation. There's four words here. He puts on salvation. Righteousness, vengeance, and zeal, verse 17. Righteousness like a breastplate, salvation like a helmet, garments of vengeance. He wraps himself with zeal as a mantle. Salvation, righteousness, vengeance, zeal. And he comes and does business with a sinful world. Now, I'm not sure, I, I don't, there's so many things about Isaiah I just find so confusing. So when we're done with Isaiah, I'm going to start it all over again. <laughs> no, we'll wait, have to wait to glory probably to ask Isaiah some of these things. But I'm not sure if Isaiah fully understood as he wrote this. Maybe he did. But oftentimes as Isaiah wrote, he wrote about things that he never saw the, the time difference, the, the gaps of time. He wrote about things that took place 150 years from his life, 700 years from his life, millennia from his life, kind of all rolled into one. And I think we have that here. The arm of the Lord brings salvation and righteousness. This is his grace. But the arm of the Lord brings vengeance and zeal. That's his wrath. He brings salvation and righteousness. When did the arm of the Lord do that? At his first coming. Isaiah 53 spoke of the servant of the Lord who came as the suffering servant and like a lamb before its shears is dumb, he uttered not a word. And he came quietly to his death, a sacrificial lamb, securing for sinful man eternal salvation and righteousness. The Apostle Paul picks up on that theme when he says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in his first coming, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, took our sin upon himself. All of that that we've read in Isaiah 59, everything that causes that separation between us and a holy God, Jesus put that upon himself all our sins, all our iniquity, all our transgressions, everything that you, everything that I have done wrong that have separated us from God, that causes us to deserve eternal destruction, hell for eternity, all of that was placed on Jesus on that Good Friday. And he died in our place. And the great transaction was he took our sins and died, but he gave us the free gift of his rightness, of his righteousness. So that when we receive Jesus as 
our Savior by simple faith. God the Father looks down upon us and He sees no longer our sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He put on the breastplate of righteousness and He died. And He put on the helmet of salvation and He offered to us freely the gift of eternal life. But He wraps Himself up with vengeance and zeal when He comes again. That's His second coming. The coming in judgment and wrath which God will institute all throughout the entire earth, even to the coastlands, he says. Even to the coastlands. Verse 20, a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And now we know that verse 1 was indeed correct. The, The hand of the Lord is not too short to save. The ear of the Lord is not too dull to hear. No, a Redeemer will come and will accomplish fully that work of redemption that He began 2,000 years ago in His first coming. In His first coming, He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. But when He comes again, He's going to fulfill all the promises. And verse 21 adds, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offsprings, says the Lord, from now and forever. And there is a day coming when Jesus will come in vengeance and zeal and for once and for all right all wrongs and deal finally with all sin. This is my covenant. He's speaking of the covenant he made with David. The covenant he made called the new covenant. I'm going to put my, my law in your hearts. God's eternal promises made to Israel that all the earth will experience one day shalom, peace, and the blessings of that day. It's coming, and this is what the Apostle Paul wrote about, again, in the book of Romans, when he quotes from this verse, verse 20. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Jesus said two chapters after Luke 19, chapter in Luke 23, he said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And the times of the Gentiles begins as Israel is destroyed. But a partial hardening has happened to Israel until those times are completed. And then he says, and so all Israel will be saved, will be delivered just as it is written. We looked at this passage before, but then he quotes Isaiah 59. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Part of what Isaiah wrote 
of the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. But Paul is saying there's another day coming when the Redeemer will come from Zion. And he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He will remember his covenant. And he will bring total and complete salvation. On that first Palm Sunday, the Redeemer came into Jerusalem but there will be a true triumphal entry in a day that is yet to come. The Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will come again, and the prophet Zechariah put it this way, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from him will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth, and he will fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will be moved toward the north and the other half to the south. Again, folks, I know of no other way to interpret this than literally. The Redeemer will come and land on the Mount of Olives, and a great earthquake will take place. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. There is another triumphal entry that's going to be coming. And as we get into the last seven chapters of Isaiah, chapters 60 through 66, we'll find out more about what that day will look like, what that time of the king reigning will look like. As we close today, I want to go back to that passage again in Isaiah 59. And the Lord saw it was displeasing in his sight. There was no justice. He saw that there was no man and was astonished, was appalled that there was no one to intercede. And then his arm, his own arm, brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Mankind's situation is desperate. We live in a desperate world, hopeless world. The wall of separation of sin is erected between mankind and a holy God. His own arm brought salvation. His own arm brought the intercession. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he was riding into the jaws of death, doom, into the arms of those who shed innocent blood, who ran swiftly to do evil, into the the snake pit and the spider's web. And he did it knowingly. And he did it out of love for us. And he died on the cross And he paid for our sins. And that was God's plan 
to send the arm of the Lord to solve the dilemma of our separation from God. Five days after that triumphal entry, Jesus breathed his last on the cross, was buried in a rich man's tomb, as Isaiah 53 told us he would, and then three days later, rose again. A Redeemer has come. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. Who is the man who will step forward and bring salvation? Who is the man who will come and intercede? There was no man. And so God says, I will send my arm, my suffering servant, who rode into Jerusalem through the cheers of people that he wept over because they did not recognize his identity. They had no idea the things that make for shalom, for peace. And so the Prince of Peace came. The Redeemer came. And He died and He satisfied a righteous God's demands to bridge the separation from sinful man and a holy God. And He did it freely. And salvation and righteousness come by His grace as a free gift to all who will simply believe it, accept it by faith. And the arm of the Lord will come again in vengeance and zeal. And all the world will stand accountable before Him. And the final victory will take place. And in that day, He will be the only King, the only one who will reign supreme. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our salvation, our righteousness. He is our Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, may we come to even greater appreciation for what you've done for us that in your in a marvelous plan of the ages recorded in so many places but certainly here in Isaiah 59 in such clear ways um, your undeserved our undeserved blessing from you the grace that you've poured on us is um, how can we express it Lord, and may this week, even in a greater way, as we worship on Good Friday at one of the services and come back on the weekend to celebrate your resurrection, Lord, may we with renewed hearts um, truly worship you because we have experienced, we have experienced your shalom, your peace. Justice has been served. The Father has been satisfied. Our sins have been dealt with paid for by the arm of the Lord who was raised to life again.
our hope as he comes again with vengeance, with zeal to put to end finally and forever. And he will reign as the only king. Father, this marvelous plan of redemption, we're so grateful we have a redeemer, a savior who is Christ the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.